Father in heaven, we do love you and we surrender everything to you. We confess that there are so many things in life that we still hold too tightly and that we try to hold dear. And so, Father, help us to loosen our grip on the things of this world, the things of this life, that we can once again find the power of your transformation, of your changing and all-consuming grace, Father, the way in which you restore and renew us. God, help us in this moment of surrender to once again be met with the fullness of the promises of the gospel. And Father, let our hearts be fully invested in you and in you alone. Father, we give our whole lives to you today and forevermore. We thank you now for this time that we can gather as a church and open your word. Fathers, we stand within the countless of generations that have gone before us and will come after us, once again reminding ourselves of these ancient truths that guide your people. May we hold them delicately and in the highest regard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, grab your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 12. We got a lot to get into today. We've been walking through a series that is focused on Jesus' parables. We've looked at the parable of new wine, the parable of judgment, and last week, one of my favorites, the parable of the sower. Parable of the sower was a great opportunity to once again consider our identity in Christ, right, and how we respond to the kingdom of God. We talked about the sower planting the seed on four different types of soils, and that the seed of God is representative of the word of God. We talked about how the word of God reveals the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is built upon the word of God. And so when we look at that particular parable, it's all meant to help us consider our various responses to the kingdom and to God's word. And we saw four different responses that really shape our identity. For some people, uh, we reject the word of God. We reject his kingdom altogether. And we were reminded that that is the work of the evil one, to call us astray and to lead us astray from God and from his kingdom and his promises. Now, some of us, though, we actually receive the word of God, we receive the kingdom and we receive it with joy, but only for a short while, right? It never takes root. It never gives us the strength that we really need for life. And so when testing comes, when trial or temptation comes, we fall away. Others receive the word of God, but it never matures, right? It never develops and cultivates the way that it should. And it gets choked out by worries and riches and pleasures. And we walk through all three of those different elements, and what we saw in Jesus' teaching was that what we should all aspire to be is this fourth soil, right? The fourth soil that receives the kingdom of God, the word of God, and it is planted deeply within us and produces a crop of a hundredfold. And what we saw in the identity of the fourth soil is that those people that receive the word of God accordingly, they hear it, they retain it, they persevere, and then it produces something within them, right? That's that transformation. That's that life change. And so, so many of the subsequent parables that we have a chance to look at, point us to that particular foundation. What does it produce within you when you truly retain it, when you truly persevere with it and hear it? What is it going to do in your life? How is it going to mold you and shape you and change you? And that's part of what we're going to look at today. Now, as we set the stage for this particular parable today, uh, I want to kind of give you some context. Every time I set out the sermon plans, uh, I do so with about a year uh, in, in advance, more or less. So I, I take some time and I pray and I seek wisdom and feedback and kind of try to discern what, what God wants us to consider, and I'll try to plan out a whole year, right? So right now I'm working on 2022. Prayer's appreciated. And so I, I try to forecast it out. Now, granted, it's all written in pencil, right? I, I would tell you I still believe it's the Spirit's leading, but I also recognize that sometimes things need to shift and change, and so I might amend what we have, but I generally get a, a direction in place. And so for 2021, 
I sense the Lord saying, you know, kind of the focus and the theme is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And that's what led to us considering the names of Jesus and the words of Jesus that were spoken to the churches in Revelation and parables, right? And so when you put together all those different ideas on a calendar, it's kind of like putting together a puzzle. And you kind of have your big pieces that you put in place first, like Easter and Christmas, you know, and you kind of know that you're going to have to dedicate certain Sundays to those. And so when I started putting these pieces together and I had the parables that I knew I wanted to fit in the fall, the problem was that there were more parables than there were weeks, right? More Sundays before Advent. And I was like, well, I'm going to have to figure out how to contort this a little bit. And so uh, my thought process was, well, I wonder if there's any particular theme that Jesus preaches on over and over again in parables, Right? And now all of them tend to a certain extent point to the kingdom of God or the nature of God, but there was one consistent theme that the parables pointed to more than any other, money. Now I had the choice to say, well, I'm just gonna dedicate a Sunday to each of those so I could just beat you over the head with money for four or five Sundays. And I was like, well, I'm not gonna do that to you. I'm gonna consolidate. So today is more than just what we're gonna do. We're gonna really focus just on one parable but I want to do so with the context of understanding there are numerous parables that Jesus offers on this subject. And so I want to briefly at least address some of the others that are mentioned so that we have a little bit more of a complete picture of how this subject is typically addressed. Okay, so we're going to be in Luke 12, but let me just briefly summarize some of the other parables that you find on this subject. So you could look at Luke 16. You don't have to turn there, but just in summary, Luke 16 is almost an entire chapter dedicated to this subject. Starts with the parable of the dishonest manager. It's a really interesting parable. A master comes to a manager and accuses him of being dishonest and says, you're no longer gonna work for me. This is all Jeremiah's translation and version. It's paraphrased, right? He says, you're no longer gonna work for me. And so the manager, realizing that he's out of a job, goes and tries to set himself up for a softer landing and goes to all these folks that owe his master money and he reduces the debt. He says, you owed 1,000, I'm gonna take it to 800. You owed 500, I'm gonna take it to 300, whatever the numbers were. And the master sees this and then commends the manager for acting shrewdly and wisely. It's a really interesting parable and the the fundamental question is why does the master commend this dishonest manager? Well, here's what you have to learn, right? The, The word that is used for dishonest that occurs at least four different times in that particular parable, when it is applied to a person, what it is conveying is somebody that lives according to the age, right? So it's not just dishonesty or deceit. It's somebody that is going in the ways of the world. And so what happens in this parable is that this manager has been living according to the ways of the world, and then once he loses his security, shifts gears and uses generosity by forgiving the debts that are owed to to others so that he can build relationships. And so that's what the master commends, right? This, This level of generosity that is cultivating relationships rather than going in the ways of the world. And so the master is not commending some manager for his dishonesty. He's commending a dishonest manager for learning how to shrewdly use wealth and resources. And the main point that Jesus is trying to make to his disciples is as followers, you too need to use those resources to cultivate relationships, not to just go into the patterns of the world. Now chapter 16 kind of builds on this idea by showing us another parable, an example that demonstrates what is typically the ways of the world. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? So you might be familiar with this particular story. There's a rich man and then there's a beggar named Lazarus who the rich man consistently ignores. They both die and the rich man ends up being tormented in the fires of Hades while the poor man ends up 
by the side of Abraham in heaven. And so the rich man looks up into heaven and he calls out to Abraham and he says, please send Lazarus back just to give me a drop of water on my tongue because of the agony that he is feeling from the torment of the flames. Uh, that, that offer is refused. And so then the rich man says, well, then at least send him to my brothers to warn them. And Abraham says, but they have the law. They have Moses to warn them. And the rich man comes back and says, yes, but they won't listen to the law and the Moses, but they'll believe if somebody comes back and talks to them from the dead, then they'll repent. And Abraham says what is basically the theme of this whole story. He says, if they won't listen to the law and to Moses, then they won't believe even if a man is brought back from the dead, which is obviously referring to the pending resurrection of Jesus. But it also creates this amazing depiction between wealth and poverty, right, and what we do with our earthly goods and resources. Now, then you could flip over to Luke 19, and in the context of Zacchaeus, you know the story of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? And so Zacchaeus comes to Jesus, decides to follow him, and how, what, how does he respond? It's the opposite of the rich man in Luke 16, right? He sells his possessions, gives to the poor. Those that he wronged, he pays four times over what he cheated them out of. And in the midst of this amazing expression of generosity, Jesus says salvation has come to this house. Right? And Zacchaeus becomes this amazing picture of generosity. And then Jesus launches into the parable of the ten minus, right? which is another parable where essentially there's a master who has ten different servants, and to each servant he entrusts them with money and says, put this money to work until the king comes back. And so then you have the king returning, and he comes up to all the different servants, and every servant's like, hey, I put it to work this way, and here's how much I made. And everyone is rewarded except for the last one. The last one who says, I didn't put it to work. I just held on to it because I didn't want to lose it. And the king says, well, then even that is going to be taken from you. And it's another message about how we steward our time here on this earth in anticipation for the king's return and how we are entrusted to put these things to work to bring him glory and honor and fame. Right? So lots and lots of stories that we find and parables that we find that are meant to drive this point home. Now, I fully recognize that talking about money is wildly uncomfortable for us. Right, if you're a guest and a visitor and you're here with us today, you're like, man, this is the Sunday I came in on. Like, really? The money sermon? Like, we hate this subject. And we try to avoid it on so many occasions, don't we? Here's my point in going through all those different references. You can't follow Jesus and avoid this subject. You can't. Not realistically. Right? If you're going to truly follow Jesus, you have to deal with this subject. You have to think about how following Jesus impacts your view of the world and money and wealth and resources. You have to take it seriously. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna use Luke chapter 12, which to me really kind of serves as the, the tone-setting parable for all the other ones that we just referenced as our guide this morning. My hope is that we receive it with an open heart and a willingness to see that to follow Jesus, we have to approach this subject head on. So turn to Luke chapter 12. The parable begins in verse 13, but I don't want you to start there. Right? I want you to first look at chapter 12, verse 1. Look at how this starts in the setting that I want you to envision for, for which this parable is offered. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another... Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, and then it goes into a list of warnings and encouragements. But picture that scene. 
thousands of people gathering, trampling upon one another, right? Picture that, that chaos, that urgency, that desire to come gather to Jesus. And it, it kind of leads to a question, what is it that is drawing people to Jesus? That it would create that sort of a response and that sort of a stir. Like, what do you think is compelling people to come there? Maybe you can answer that question by putting yourself in their shoes. Like, imagine yourself thousands of years ago. What would draw you to Jesus? Why would you be in that crowd, in the midst of that scene? Would it be the healings? Like, the chance that just maybe you or a loved one could be cured, is that what would draw you in? Right, maybe it's the miracles, just a glimpse. It's something miraculous and powerful. Maybe it's the teachings you'd heard about, right? Here's this person that teaches with authority. What's he gonna say next? What would draw you to Jesus? I want you to ask yourself that question, not imagining yourself thousands of years ago, but today. What draws you to Jesus? Like, why are you here? Why do you, why do you come to Christ? What is it that compels you to him? Right? Is it habit, routine? Man, I grew up in church. This is just kind of what I know. Is it peace of mind? Is it, does it give you a sense of joy? Like, what, what is it that draws you to Jesus? But more importantly, what do you do when those things falter? When routines and habits are disrupted or peace of mind is elusive and joy is hard to come by? What draws you to Jesus then? See, the fundamental question that I really want us to wrestle with this morning is what is it about Jesus that you truly treasure? What is it about him that you truly value? I think that's what this parable really is gonna force us to answer. Now, keep in mind the context, right? This is the scene, Jesus offers some teachings, and then in verse 13, the parable begins. You can follow along with me. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. <clears throat> the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Now I want to point out, before we dive into this, what follows. Right, if you continue to look through Luke chapter 12, you'll see the very well-known section about don't worry, a section that we referenced several times last week. Don't worry about what you will eat or drink or wear, right? That seek the kingdom of God first and all these things will be given unto you. That's kind of what Jesus launches into after the telling of this parable. But there are many things for us to learn, many lessons that we can take from this particular parable that Jesus offers today. Right? And here's where I want us to begin. I, I really want to begin with the statement, right? The statement that serves as a catalyst for this whole parable to be launched. And so think about it. Here's this crowd. They're all gathered around. They're trampling upon one another. Jesus is talking to the disciples about a various list of warnings and encouragements. He's saying, don't worry about who can kill only the body. Worry about the one who can kill body and soul. If you acknowledge me, then I'll acknowledge you. 
before the Father. Don't worry if you're pulled into synagogues and rulers and authorities what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit's going to tell you what to say. It's in the midst of all of that that he's interrupted. Right? Like, like somebody interjects. And, and I don't know because we don't know exactly how close he was to Jesus, but I imagine he's shouting because of the large crowd and the chaos and how many people are trampling upon one another. But he, he shouts over the crowd or, or he states, to Jesus, he interjects and he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now notice that he's not even asking, right? It, it's not like, would you tell my brother? Could you please tell my brother? It's a statement, Jesus, do this, which is an insight to the mindset and the posture with which he has approached Christ in this moment, right? But in addition to that, it at least at the, at the very minimum acknowledges the sense of authority, right? At least he sees that Jesus, as teacher, as rabbi, could maybe offer a definitive word for his situation. But the real question for me is, what's his motivation? Why is he saying this? So, so William Barclay offers a great commentary on this particular parable, and, and I will refer to him on numerous occasions for today's message. But he points out what is kind of commonly known within Judaic law that is, is not explicitly stated in the text. In Judaic law, when it comes to an inheritance, the eldest son was guaranteed at least two-thirds of the father's estate. And the youngest son, or all of the remaining youngest sons, would take the last third and divide it amongst themselves. So we can probably assume that the man interjecting here and speaking is the younger brother, maybe one of several brothers, right? And so his, he knows the law, he knows the situation, and essentially he starts to respond and, and ask for more, right? He, he's asking for something different. Now, here's what's really interesting about that is I think this is something that is fairly applicable to our context today, right? Because many of us understand that if there's ever a situation that can often put a strain on family, this is it, right? This is it. In fact, I came across this article in Forbes uh, magazine. It was written in 2016, and it had this interesting statistic that was kind of the premise for the whole article. The statistic was this, that over the next 30 years, $30 trillion will be inherited. That's amazing. $30 trillion over the next 30 years. So the article kind of starts with a quote from a comedian, uh, the comedian that says, uh, you know the old saying, where there's a will, there's a family fighting over it, right? And it's a joke that resonates because it's true, right? Like there's so much truth to it. And the author offers a personal anecdote of somebody that they know that a uh, situation was, here's a father who in his older age began to self-diagnose his, his wife for being in the early onset stages of Alzheimer's. So he appoints his two oldest children to be um, executors of his will and power of attorney. And so after he dies, within 14 days, those two older children remove their mother from the multi-million dollar home, put her in a facility, sell the home, take the money, and the youngest child is just undone by it. And so animosity ensues, the family splits apart, they're not on speaking terms. Now, uh, maybe you just know this as an anecdote, and you've heard stories. I'm willing to bet many of you know them more personally, maybe not directly, but people you know where you have seen this sort of situation. And if you do have any sort of direct experience with these sorts of situations, you know just how gut-wrenching it can be and how divisive, you, you know the sort of hostility 
that can all of a sudden exist amongst the family. And I personally believe, while we can't say it for certain, I believe that's what's happening. I think it's in that sort of situation, that sort of anxiety, that sort of dissension with his brother. This man has come to Jesus. That's his pain. That's his need. And he's saying, Jesus, tell my brother to give me this inheritance, to share this inheritance with me. Maybe he's been wronged. Maybe the brother's taken on. We don't know. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, give me my brother. He doesn't say, give me forgiveness. He doesn't say, give us reconciliation. He says, give me my money. He wants more. And that's the situation that's the catalyst for this particular parable. And so Jesus' response is pretty direct from the very beginning. Man, who am I to be judge or arbiter between you? I think that's another way of Jesus saying, you know the law. I'm not getting involved in that. But he launches into the real heart of the issue, doesn't he? Right, this isn't about a division of money. This is about what's going on in your heart. And Jesus offers a thesis for the parable, right? If you want to know what this parable is about, Jesus tells you, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. There it is. Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And everything in the parable is meant to drive that point home. Right? So when you think about that statement, that thesis, to watch out, to be on guard, means to abstain. It means to keep away from. He's saying abstain from greed. Right? Greed is the desire for more. Right? It could be a desire for more. It could be the acquisition of more, the pursuit of more. And when it continues to develop, a lot of times it results in the exploitation of others. But if you want a word to attach to greed, it's just that idea of more. Right? And so that's what Jesus is trying to get us to watch out and to guard against. And so the parable is meant to provide this explanation. And when we look at this parable, what we find is an example of what not to do. Right? What we find is the example of the greedy person who sees life through the lens of it being an accumulation and an abundance of possessions. So as we break it down and try to apply it to our own lives, what we have to do is say, okay, this is the example to avoid. Right? We, we've got to do the opposite. And in that, we find the ways to guard against greed and to view life more beautifully and holistically as God intended. Right? So what are, what are the things that we learn from this particular rich young man? The first thing that I would say that we need to caution against, the first mistake that this rich young man forgets is the source of his provision. You know, the more I kept reading through this parable this past week, you know what kept striking me at the very beginning is what was the source of the abundant harvest? The ground. I just, I love that. The ground produced an abundant harvest, not the man. Right now, he's probably familiar with farming, and those who were listening to this parable would have been familiar with farming and understood that the farmer works, he goes, he toils, he plants, he does all these different things, but God makes it grow. God sends the rain, God tills the soil, all those different things that are beyond the farmer's control. Right? The ground produced the harvest. And when you typically find an abundant harvest because you're aware of all those other things that you're dependent upon, typically an abundant harvest yields gratitude. <laughs> right? A sense of appreciation for this great provision. And none of that seems to be apparent 
in the rich man's life. It's reasonable to assume that the rich man is interpreting this provision based upon his own abilities, right? His own strength, his own aptitude, his own wisdom as a farmer, his own intellect. And that's one of the first things that we see leading us down a path of greed is that we forget the true source and we lose out on trying to foster that sense of gratitude and we take credit. Right, so we, we find ourselves in these moments of receiving whatever sort of provision or blessing it can be, and we take credit, man. It's because of my wisdom. It's because of how hard I worked. It's because of my intellect, my decision on that deal. It was because of this network that I created. It was all these different things, and we view it through the lens of our own personal aptitude. And that's the doorway towards greater greed. Right, that we fail to recognize that God was the one that gave us our intellect, gave us our abilities, gave us our talents, gave us our skills, gave us the very life itself to even consider pursuing those things. You guard against greed by presenting yourself in a posture of gratitude, knowing that all things come from the creator. And so let me ask you, when was the last time you were truly grateful for what God has given you? And I'm not just talking about money, I just mean grateful it's the last time you stopped and just said thank you god for life for health for for food for safety whatever it is when was the last time you truly lived with that spirit of gratitude in your life and that's how we guard against this particular sense of greed Right, so we have to move forward with that spirit of gratitude. Now, the other thing that we see is that it's not enough to just be grateful, is it? Right, because you can, you can get a whole lot of stuff and just be like, thank you, God, and then continue to spend it however you want. And, and so that was really the dilemma, is it's not just being grateful, it's what do I do when I receive these blessings? And that's really the dilemma that the rich young man finds himself in. He asks this question, what shall I do? And, and I really kind of laugh at the question, right? It's like, it's just, it's funny. It's like, oh my gosh, I got so much money and my barns are already full. What am I gonna do with this, God? And it's like, half of us are like, yeah, give us, give me that problem, God. I'll, be, I'll take that one on. I can suffer for having too much money. Now, that's the dilemma, though. What am I supposed to do with this? And as he tries to process his responsibility to this provision, notice the lens through which he processes it. Right? In fact, many people, many commentators that I was, was studying throughout the past this, uh, this past week pointed out that this is one of the most self-absorbed sections of Scripture. Right? You can go back and read through the parable and listen to the first-person pronouns. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, 10 different personal pronouns, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. So you've used it all through the lens of self, and when you view everything through the lens of self, then you tend to interpret it as an opportunity for you to enjoy your own personal comfort and luxury, right? I'm gonna build bigger barns so I can take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now this is critical because this is really the deception of greed, right? The deception of greed is just a little bit more will make you happy. That's the lie. 
it's really the heart of any addiction, right? One more hit, one more drink, one more time, one more deal, whatever it is, just one more will create happiness only to discover it doesn't. And so what, what greed does when we threw it through the lens of self is that my happiness is gonna be built upon financial security, the chance to just do what I want, eat, drink, and be merry. That's where I'm gonna find happiness only to discover it always disappoints. Right? The Bible actually teaches something very differently, doesn't it? The Bible teaches us that, that happiness is not found in the acquisition of more. Right? Happiness is found in being content. Right? That a lot of times it's in the pursuit of more that you don't find happiness. You actually find many more griefs. Think about 1 Timothy chapter 6. I love the way that this is presented it says, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were made, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And I love the way it says it, right? You brought nothing into this world. You can take nothing out of this world. True happiness is not found in the acquisition of more, but contentment with godliness, and if I have food and I have clothes to wear, I'm good. That's it. But when I try to get rich, when I try to get one more, when I want just one more deal, one more success, whatever, that pursuit of all that, that leads to a wandering of faith and being pierced by many griefs. Right? What an, an amazing reminder. So what's painfully absent from the rich young man as he processes this abundance of provision is the lack of any reference to the neighbor. The lack of any reference to the other. It's all through the lens of self and self-gratification and self-happiness and self-worth. There's no reference to the other or the neighbor, even when his barns are already full. How terrible is that? Even with all that he had already been given, don't you know there was somebody hungry? Don't you know there was somebody less well off? And not even then, when everything was already full, did he give it a consideration? Just how can I build bigger barns? How can I do more? See, the problem with greed is it minimizes the view of the other and accentuates the view of the self. Another point that, that Barclay points out that I really, really loved is that Jesus came to banish the words, I and mine, from life, and to substitute we and ours. He points out that it is certainly significant that in the Lord's Prayer, the first person singular never occurs. It always occurs in the first person plural. Self is banished, and man is taught to think of himself as one of a community of brethren. Love that. And we are called to love God and love the neighbor. 
When you find yourself being grateful for God's provision, you receive that provision not thinking through what does this do for me, but what does this do for others? How does this lead me to a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor? That's the lens through which we need to operate to guard against greed and to see life for what it is. And let me just make a quick comment. That is not a word just for us as individuals. That's a word for us as a church. It's easy for churches to fall into this trap, to take what God has given and just build bigger barns, bigger facilities, right? And so when we receive God's provision, when we receive what he's entrusted to us, we as a church need to say, we need to receive this through the lens of others. How do we use this to better the community? How do we use this to care for the neighbor? We always need to have that lens in mind, right? And so you think about, number one, gratitude, then the lens of others. The third thing that the rich man forgets is something we can all relate to, right? Because maybe some of you are sitting there going, man, I really just don't have this problem. Like, I don't, I don't have that kind of money. This is not a parable just for if you're wealthy, right? It's the love of money. It's the pursuit of money. It's anything that can foster that desire for more, And one of the things that I think is really um, telling about this particular parable that really relates to all of us is that the other thing the rich young man forgot was the notion of time. Because what does he do with what's been provided? He stores it. Right? Listen to his conclusion. I have enough grain laid up for what? Many years. I've got all I need now to, to live all these years that are ahead of me. He forgets the very notion of time, right? He, he forgets that tomorrow is not a guarantee. And so if you think about this, this is kind of why God responds the way that he does, right? He, he reaches into this moment and he says, you fool, this very night, Your life will be demanded for you. And then who will get everything you saved up for yourself? So the word fool shouldn't be taken lightly, right? The the word fool, especially in an Old Testament context, was reserved for those who uh, rejected the ways and the principles of God and what God had established for life. And so here's a rich young man who has chosen to forget gratitude, to look at everything through the lens of himself and to presume that he has tomorrow. And God says, that's foolish. Right, the way that I've told you to live is to move forward with gratitude and humility, to be mindful of others and to seek my kingdom first today. Because tomorrow is not guaranteed. Right, this is a trap that we often fall into. Again, this was another great quote from Barclay's commentary on this particular parable. I want to share it with you this morning. He, he makes this interesting story. He says, there's an old story of three apprentice devils who were coming from hell to serve their time on earth. And they were telling Satan before they left what they proposed to do. One said, I will tell men that there is no God. And Satan said, well, that will not do because in their heart of hearts, they already know that there is. Well, the second one said, well, I will tell them that there is no hell. And Satan said, that is still more hopeless for even in life they have experienced the remorse of hell. But the third said, I will tell men that there is no hurry. Go, said Satan, tell them that and you will ruin them by the millions. Barclay continues, it may well be said that the most dangerous word in the English language is the word tomorrow. It may be a grim thought 
but a necessary thought, that we have no bond on time, no one knows if for him tomorrow will ever come. It is a grim thought to think that way. And I wanna be clear, I'm not saying you can't have dreams and visions and crap. I mean, I told you, I'm oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I, I plan out a sermon for a year at a time. And, and that's planning, right? Like, I mean, that's part of the way that I go about things. So I'm not saying you can't plan. I'm not saying you can't dream and have visions of those different things. Right, But when we presume upon the idea that tomorrow is guaranteed, or as the rich young man says here, that I've got many years ahead of me, we lose what is really important. And what is that? What's so important is for us to recognize today is a gift. It's a gift. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are. But today is a gift. How are you going to use it? Will you approach it with gratitude? Will you approach it with the lens of considering others? Will you approach it with an understanding that today is a beautiful and amazing gift that you can give back to the Lord? We are, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Dream, plan, have goals, have them, yes. But seek first his kingdom today. Right, these are the lessons we can learn from this rich young man. Now, all of that, when you package it together, I think really drives us to a fundamental question about what does it mean to respond to following Jesus in light of what he is teaching us about earthly possessions and wealth. Right? What, do, what do we do? Right, really, what we're talking about was, is giving, living this life of generosity. How, how do I steward the things that have been entrusted to me, and how do I steward them well? And we've had numerous conversations about that, and there's so many different directions to take it. I have, I have one primary point to make this morning before trying to wrap up. And I was reminded of this, actually, in having a conversation over coffee this, this past week. Because a lot of times, I, I think we give, and we think about the conversation of giving with a very limited perspective. It's an important piece, but it's not complete. Right? And, and I'll be the first one to confess, right? Like, in just what it is to sit in my seat as pastor or to think about how do you lead a church when it comes to giving. I'll tell you, one of the common things that you'll hear in a part of that discussion, whether it's at a conference or a staff meeting or whatever, is we talk about the need to make sure that people understand what their giving is going to accomplish, right? Kind of the common phrase is, man, people wanna give to a cause. Let's show them what it's going to do. Let's paint the picture that for every dollar you give, like people are gonna be fed and Bibles are gonna be purchased and People are gonna be sent to camp, right? Like we wanna do, and that's a good thing. It's transparent, right? It helps paint the picture, but it's woefully insufficient and incomplete for a very important reason. The reason is that, that those needs and those causes, they come and go. And so if you're just giving because you think there's a need, what happens when there's no longer a need? Or a cause that doesn't stir you or motivate you or that you don't resonate with? Why do you give then? And as my friend so appropriately said, giving is about discipleship. Right? We give because Jesus has told us, guard yourself, watch out, abstain from greed. And we need a regular reminder that life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. And so I give out of a surrender to Jesus. And to demonstrate that I understand life is so much 
more. So whether I'm inspired by the cause or not doesn't matter. I give because I'm a follower of Christ. And when I follow Jesus this way, I find a greater understanding of how his word is producing something within me. It's changing me. It's molding me to have my heart appropriately anchored. Right? Think, think about what Jesus says in the section related to do not worry. He concludes that by saying, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. For where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I guess that's the appropriate way to conclude. Ask that question, where is your heart? There are so many earthly treasures that we commit ourselves to. So where is your heart? What is it about Jesus that you truly value, (laughs) that you truly treasure? See, what we discover when we give ourselves to Jesus is that we find a Savior who reminds us of hope, who gives us an assurance of an everlasting tomorrow. We find a Christ and a Savior who is willing to march to the cross and bear upon his shoulders the iniquity of us all so that by his wounds we can be healed. And that when we look at the empty tomb, we can know confidently and without question that sin and death do not win. That's why we come to Jesus. That's the treasure that he truly provides. That's what draws us to him. It's an unfailing love. Commit your heart to all these other things and I assure you they will fail. But the love of Christ endures forever. So where is your heart, church? What do you treasure? Why do you find yourself being drawn to Jesus? May it forever be the unfailing love of Christ our King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you, and we are grateful for who you are. We're grateful, God, that we can find contentment in all situations because of this gospel. God, that you give us an opportunity to once again surrender all things, to give all things. God, help us to live a life that is rich with gratitude, that is constantly aware of the neighbor and the other. Father, that understands that tomorrow is not guaranteed and that we would seek you wholeheartedly today. God, that we give to you because of your call upon our lives. And Father, that we anchor ourselves in this unfailing love that is only found in you. God, help us to live accordingly Father, we know that when we pursue such things, we find your goodness. We discover once more that when we surrender the things that we think we need, we found a Father who is loving, is good, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. More than we need the treasures of this earth, 
we need to build upon our lives, upon your goodness and your grace. Help us to do that, Father, both today and forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.